welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, your episode last week was incredible. Thank you. And I have been listening to uh, Fleetwood Mac ever since. Uh, good, because I have also been listening to Fleetwood Mac <laughs> for the last like three weeks, and so it's just about time that and I hope it our gets listeners, in everybody else's heads, too. Exactly. I hope our listeners have also been listening to Fleetwood Mac. And so... Um, I was inspired to do a music episode, which is not this week's episode. Okay. Um, but I am going to do one in the near future. So get ready for that, everybody. <laughs> um, but today I decided to go back to my roots. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to, uh, talk about another artist that I can't believe that I have not actually spoken about in depth on this podcast. So I apologize to her because she's still living. If she listens to this podcast, oh my god, I would die if she listened god, to this podcast. If she listened to this I podcast. would absolutely drop dead. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the queen of polka dots, Yayoi Kasoma. <laughs> That's like the best moniker, right? She's the queen of polka dots, and she'll tell you that why she's the queen of polka dots, and um. Uh, there's like a lightness and a darkness to her polka dots that we'll get into, but um, I was inspired because we have, the mag, mm-hmm. has a Yayo Kasama piece. Um, it's called uh, Statue of Venus Obliterated by Infinity Nets, and it's a Statue of Venus that's hot pink, and she has green polka dots all over mm-hmm. her. And it's one of our favorite pieces, and it's one of our visitors' favorite pieces, too, because she is like, your eyes dance. Right. Yeah. Um, in its presence. So... But let's talk about Yayoi. So Yayoi Kasama was born on March 22nd, 1929 in Matsumoto, Nagano. And she was born into a family of merchants who owned a plant nursery and a seed farm. Um, And Kusama began drawing pictures of pumpkins in elementary school and created artwork she saw from hallucinations. Oh, wait. Yep. (laughs) I was like, pumpkins? Yeah. Hallucinations? Mm. Ooh. Mm. Um, So works of which which would later define her career. I should mention, like, from the top... First of all, there's a really great documentary about her um, on Hulu, I believe. Mm-hmm. It talks about her story. They interview her because she's, you know, she's still alive um, and talks about her work. Yayoi Kasama, once you kind of get her biography, you know exactly what her artwork means. Oh, okay. Like she is very transparent about what this stuff means. Everything traces back to her childhood, traces back to her mental health, traces back to like her, like her internal world. It's very straightforward. And so her artwork is both accessible and also easily read, which is rare for a contemporary artist. So, um, even now, like she'll do giant pumpkins, these big sculptures of giant pumpkins covered in polka dots. And they're really beautiful. Um, however, she had a very difficult childhood. Her mother was not supportive of her creative endeavors and she would actually rush to finish her art because her mother would actually take it away from her because she didn't want her to be an artist or she didn't, she discouraged her from expressing her artistic creativity. Um, her mother was also apparently physically abusive and, um, she also remembers her father as quote, the type who would play around who would womanize a lot. And uh, Kusama says that her mother would often send her to spy on her father's extramarital affairs, which instilled within her a a lifelong contempt for sexuality, particularly the phallus. Um, her mother would use her to go spy on him? And then she would watch, like, as a child, she would watch her father having sex Aww. with his, like, with women who was having... And then, the, like, the report back? Yeah. Oh, that's so awful. It's very awful. 
So she said once, Kusama said, quote, I don't like sex. I had an obsession with sex. When I was a child, my father had lovers and I experienced seeing him. My mother sent me to spy on him. I didn't want to have sex with anyone for years. The sexual obsession and fear of sex sit side by side in me. Um, her traumatic childhood, including her fantastic visions, can be said to be the origin of her artistic style, as I said before. So her hallucinations. Mm-hmm. When she was 10, she began to experience vivid hallucinations, which she has described as, quote, flashes of light, auras, or dense fields of dots. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So. Are we sure it wasn't like some weird migraine thing? I mean, I, so she's, <laughs> <laughs> it mm. might be. Um, so these hallucinations also included flowers that spoke to her and also patterns and fabric oh, okay. that she stared at that would come to life. They would multiply and engulf or expunge her, a process which she has carried into artistic career and which she calls self-obliteration. And we're going to come back <sighs> to that. Um, but her art became her escape from her family and her own mind when she began to have hallucinations. So she was reportedly fascinated by the smooth white stones covering the bed of the river near her family home, which she cites another of the seminal influences okay. behind her lasting fixation on dots. So dots become like, they're part of her hallucinations that kind of like engulf her. She sees these beautiful smooth white stones. It's like a whole, oh my like, gosh. it's a full thing. So when she was 13, she was sent to work in a military factory where she was tasked with sewing and fabricating parachutes for the Japanese army, which was then embroiled in World War II. So uh, she was discussing her time in the factory, and she said that she spent her adolescence, quote, in closed darkness, although she could always hear the air raid alerts going off and seeing American B-29s flying overhead in broad daylight. So her childhood was greatly influenced by the events of the war, and she claims that it was during this period that she began to value notions of personal and creative freedom. Um, She went on to study Nihonga painting at the Kyoto Municipal School of Arts and Crafts in 1948, and um, she was very frustrated by the kind of like... um, limiting style of this distinctly Mm -hmm. Japanese style. Mm -hmm. And so she became more interested in European and American avant-garde. Okay. And by then she was staging several solo exhibitions of her paintings in Matsumoto and Tokyo in the 1950s. So by 1950, she was depicting abstract natural forms in watercolor, gouache, and oil, uh, primarily on paper. But then she began covering surfaces like walls, floors, canvases, household objects, naked bodies, everything with the polka dots that would become a trademark of her work. So these huge fields of polka dots, which she called infinity nets, Mm -hmm. um, were taken directly from her hallucinations. So if you haven't seen her infinity nets, they are, um, they look like starling murmurations. So when birds like giant flocks of birds like mm-hmm. move as one and they kind of like condense in one area and they're like like farther oh, away in others. Yeah. That's kind of how her her infinity nets look. Okay. It looks as though they're kind of like a net of dots that were like flung over a something, a three-dimensional object or a wall. So there might be some some that are more densely packed in some oh, areas okay. than others. Like, like on the piece of the mag. Yes, like okay. the piece of the mag. And the polka dots aren't um, perfectly round. They're mm-hmm. kind of um, shaped differently. They're not. They're they're round where you can identify them as polka dots, but they're not like they're they're not perfectly round polka dots like you would imagine from like a 1950s dress or something mm-hmm. like that. 
Um, so the earliest recorded work in which she incorporated these dots was a drawing in 1939 at age 10 in which the image of a Japanese woman in a kimono presumed to be her mother is covered and obliterated by spots. So this idea of her hallucinations are covering and obliterating her mother by erasing her mother, this, this source of her pain through these hallucination, this hallucinogenic dot field. So about her 1954 painting, which is called Flower, she said, quote, one day I was looking at the red flower patterns of the tablecloth on a table. And when I looked up, I saw the same pattern covering the ceiling, the windows and the walls. And finally, all over the room, my body and the universe. I felt as if I had begun to self-obliterate, to revolve in the infinity of endless time and the absoluteness of space and be reduced to nothingness. As I realized it was actually happening and not just my imagination, I was frightened. I knew I had to run away lest I should be deprived of my life by the spell of the red flowers. I ran desperately up the stairs. The steps below me began to fall apart and I fell down the stairs spraining my ankle. Oh my gosh. It's intense. This is some inception shit right Right? here. Yeah. So her hallucinations, which she has had throughout her life, are is this idea of she's in so much pain that she has to self obliterate. So these dots cover her body. They come into her mind. They like cover the space, they cover the universe, they cover everything around her. And so she becomes both soothed and also frightened by it. So the soothing, like, so she's like, I am not myself. I am one with the universe. The dots cover me. They cover everything. But also it's, it's terrifying. Like you, then you are no longer have your own like personal freedom of being your own body. And so, it's this push and pull of this like infinity net thing. And then she is compelled to repeat those in her artwork on and on and on. So I mean, uh, I don't want to say this. It's intense. It is intense. And it's funny because it's not just like, Oh, let's look at that pretty thing with polka dots. And that's the thing. Like her work is so accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's fun. It's colorful. Like these beautiful polka dots kind of, you see so many people taking pictures. Yeah. Very Instagrammable. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole thing. So there's this wonderful dichotomy of like fun Instagram, like accessible, cute, like these cute polka dot pumpkins Mm -hmm. are so fun. When in fact, like the source of these infinity nets is her mental pain, her mental and psychological pain. It's out of control. Do they not, I'm trying to not be like a, uh, an armchair doctor here, but like, has there been, uh, descriptions of like, why, one's brain would do such a thing? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if she's ever, I'm sure she's been diagnosed. I don't mm-hmm. know if like that, like mm-hmm. that information is out there or if she's ever shared it or that kind of thing. Um, spoiler alert, she currently lives in a, in a mental institution in Tokyo um, by her own choice. Wow. Um, so it's something that she has struggled with her whole life, but also used. Like okay. it's, it's part of her um, therapy is wow. the artwork. So I don't know if she's ever been... Um, She's been diagnosed with anything, mm-hmm. but it's definitely something that like is forefront in her mind all the time. And it's part of her artwork. Wow. So, um, so she lived in Tokyo and she lived in France in her mm-hmm. early twenties. And then finally she left Japan at the age of 27 and she wanted to live in the U S. Mm-hmm. So, um, she had the reason why was because she had began to consider Japanese society to be quote, too small, too servile, too feudalistic, and too scornful of women. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before she left for the U.S., she destroyed almost all of her artwork. It was like clean slate. Whoa. I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm not going to. I'm going to be a new person. Mm-hmm. 
1957, she moved to Seattle and she had an exhibition of paintings there and she stayed there for about a year. Um, but then she moved to New York City because she was actually in writing correspondence with Georgia O'Keeffe. Which okay. is wild that they uh-huh. would like interact because they seem like two very different artists from mm-hmm. like different places in time, but um, they were pen pals essentially. And Kusama professed an interest in joining the limelight of New York City and she asked for O'Keefe's advice. So during her time in the U.S., she quickly established her reputation as a leader in the avant-garde movement and received praise for her work from art credits. So she was immediately a hit. It didn't hurt that she was like, quote unquote, exotic. Mm -hmm. She was stunningly beautiful. She was young. And she was like, really like immediately was kind of absorbed into that mid-century post-modern like world. And she was doing some things that maybe other people weren't. Yes. And we'll get to that for sure. Um, so in 1961, she moved her studio into the same building as Donald Judd and sculptor Ava Hess. Um, Hess became a close friend, as a matter of fact. And so in the early 1960s, and this again goes back to her childhood, Kusama began to cover items such as ladders, shoes, and chairs with white phallic protrusions. So um, this was like, this is also, so the two things you should think about when you're thinking of Yayoi Kusama. Is dots and dicks. Dots and dicks. Yes, that's wonderful. Done. I don't need to do the rest of this podcast. Like, so big polka dots, right? Infinity nets. And then big, soft, stuffed dicks on everything. Chairs, floors, ladders, everything. Walls, covered. Like, she is, because of her, I I shouldn't, again, I'm not armchair diagnosing this woman, but her whole thing is repetition. She doesn't Mm -hmm. do just one thing and then puts it aside and is Mm -hmm. like, that's done. She has to cover every, (laughs) she has to cover every surface around her. Like that's that, that's that moving on to the next thing. She just, she has an incredible amount of focus where she can just paint dots over and over and over again into an entire studio where it's like wall ceilings, floors, everything just not sleeping, just like paint, paint, paint. And she did the same thing with these like, soft phallic protrusion. So this is like another aspect of her artwork. So, um, again, because despite the fact that it's like this, this intricacy of like the dots, she turned this artwork out so fast Mm -hmm. and in in bulk. And she established this kind of rhythm of production that she still maintains today. And this woman is elderly. 92. Yeah. I think she's 92. Um, she also established other habits too, like having herself routinely photographed with her new work and regularly appearing in public wearing her signature bobbed wigs and her colorful avant-garde fashion. And even now, like you'll see her mm-hmm. with, she wears this like Bright hot red, pink, yeah, yeah, hot, hot pink, red yeah. wig. Yeah. Um, she says a polka dot has the form of the sun, which is a symbol of the energy of the whole world and our living life. And also the form of the moon, which is calm, round, soft, colorful, senseless, and unknowing polka dots become movement. Polka dots are a way to infinity. She says, um, so let's talk a little bit about her infinity rooms, which are super hot right now. Um, but she's been working on them since 1963 and, um, so these are, it's a series of mirror slash infinity rooms. And in these complex infi- infinity mirror installations, there are purpose built rooms lined with mirrored glass that contain scores of neon colored balls hanging at various heights above the viewer. Mm-hmm. 
And then if you stand inside on a small platform, you can see light repeatedly reflecting off the mirrored surfaces to create the illusion of a never ending space. Mm -hmm. So this is another aspect of her infinity nets, right? So you're standing in a room where there's nothing but mirrored surfaces around you. There's light coming from wherever you don't know where it's coming from. And you can see yourself, but yourself is obliterated by the light and the reflections Mm -hmm. and everything else around you. So you are, by standing into the infinity room, you are standing in infinity and also you are obliterated by infinity. So she's continuously trying to like allow the viewer to like enter into the space of infinity to like let yourself become nothing obliterated, which is wild. Mm -mm. Um, They're very cool. So, Throughout the 1960s, she was crazy productive. Um, she counted Judd and Joseph Cornell among her friends and supporters. More about him in a second. Um, she actually did not profit financially from her work. Uh, around this time, she was hospitalized regularly from overwork mm-hmm. because she wouldn't eat, she wouldn't drink, she wouldn't sleep. And in fact, O'Keefe... Those was, are three of my favorite things. I know. They're one of three of my favorite things too. But she was just like so obsessive about finishing. And actually, at one point, Georgia O'Keeffe persuaded her own uh, art dealer, Edith Herbert, to purchase several works to help her stave off financial hardship. Um, Also, this was cool. Many men artists copied her creativity, which made them famous, but not her. Ah, yes. Typical. Mm -hmm. So because of this... Rosalind fucking Franklin syndrome. Exactly. So she wasn't able to make the money that she believed she deserved, which she definitely deserved. And this frustration that she was constantly going through made her became so extreme that she actually attempted suicide. Mm. Um, also in the 1960s, she organized uh, what were called happenings. Um, so happenings are like part performance art, part protest, part just like group. I don't know, like a flash mob, basically, I guess you could call it <laughs> yeah. like a sixties flash uh-huh. mob. So she would she would organize these happenings um, in conspicuous spots like Central Park and the Brooklyn Bridge, and of course it also it almost always involved nudity, and they were designed to protest the Vietnam War usually. So in one, she wrote an open letter to Richard Nixon, offering to have sex with him if he would stop the Vietnam War. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. History will prove that this was unsuccessful. Oh, okay, um, <laughs> unless there's something we don't know about. Uh, so between 67 and 69, she concentrated on performances held with maximum publicity, usually involving her painting polka dots on her naked performers. Okay. So now it's this idea of you are being engulfed by the infinity nets around you. And now the infinity nets are being painted on you. So like your body is now part of the infinity nets. Okay. This is just like an extension of her whole oeuvre. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there was also a happening called the Grand Orgy to Awaken the Dead at the MoMA in 1969. Took part in the Sculpture Garden of the Museum of Modern Art. Did it work? Uh, mm, no, it did not. Uh, I'm reading ahead. It didn't. Um, so during this, it was an unannounced event. It just happened, hence the name. Um, eight performers under Kusama's direction removed their clothing, stepped nude into a fountain, and assumed poses mimicking the nearby sculptures by Picasso, Giacometti, and Maliol. Um, so in 1968, she presided over the happening called Homosexual Wedding at the Church of Self-Obliteration at 33 Walker Street in New York. And she performed alongside <gasps> Fleetwood Mac. What? Yeah. And uh, a band called Country Joe and the Fish. What year was it? This was 1968. Oh, so that was the old Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, old Fleetwood mm-hmm. Mac, yeah. 
Um, so not yeah. the fake Fleetwood Mac. No, not the fake but one. The old Hopefully, Mac. I mean, who knows? <laughs> um, so she performed with them at the Fillmore East in New York City. Um, she opened Naked Painting Studios and a gay social club called the Kusama Omophile Company, or KOK. Um, the What's nudid- omophile mean? Uh, like homophile, but oh. she dropped oh, the H, okay, so it's okay. KOK. Okay. Um, the nudity present present in Kusama's art and art protests were severely shameful for her family. And again, this made her feel ashamed and alone. And she attempted suicide again. So in 66, she actually first participated in the Venice Biennial for its 33rd edition. And she performed Narcissus Garden, which comprised hundreds of mirrored spheres outdoors in what she called a kinetic carpet. And as soon as the piece was installed in the lawn outside the Italian pavilion, Kusama, dressed in a golden kimono, began selling each individual sphere for 1,200 lira, which was about two bucks uh-huh. in U.S. money, um, until the biennial organizers put an end to her enterprise. And so Nar- Narcissus Garden was as much about the promotion of the artist through the media as it was an opportunity to, to offer a critique of the mechanization and commodification of the art market. Naturally. Of course. Um, also during her time in New York, she had a brief relationship with artist Donald Judd, who she shared a studio with. She then began a passionate but platonic relationship with the surrealist artist, Joseph Cornell. Okay. So she was 26 years, his junior. Okay. They would call each other every day. They would draw each other and he would send personalized collages to her and their association would last until his death in 1972. Joseph Cornell was a weird dude. He would make these wonderful, him. um, we have a piece in our collection. It's like a little, it looks like a shadow box. He would put like small balls and like little pieces inside of these glassed shadow boxes. He lived with his mother his entire life. He was very like kind of stunted emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, he was very strange. Um, he didn't like run in the same circles, but he had like this brilliant surrealist mind. And so he was more appreciated like in the surrealist circles, but he was still like, strange and like so you didn't invite him to your party you weren't inviting joseph carnell to his parties because you're probably being his mother it was just like a whole thing <laughs> so like, who would we even sit him next to he's gonna bring his mom yeah and he's just gonna talk about weird stuff <laughs> and i just don't have it i don't have the patience for it but her relationship like her relationship with joseph cornell when she talks about it she she's very like um fond of him mm-hmm. um I don't know if, if his intentions toward her were like sexual or like weird or like, you know, who knows? She seemed to appreciate his attention and his, Okay, they would like fight and then they would like take breaks and like they both, you know, they were two people who had a lot of mental health issues that, you know, they somehow found a connection with each other, even though he was so much older than her. Yeah. Or like maybe she was seeing him as like an elderly figure, not elder, not elderly necessarily, but I mean like, like a, an older, an older art, like figure mentor. Since yeah. she what since she wasn't getting that from her own family. Exactly, exactly. So it's very strange. I mean, from the outside, it looks very creepy and inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But you know, to hear her talk about it, she seemed to have a lot of affection for him. Okay. Um, so that's just like a little side note about her personal life. So in 1973, she returned to Japan because she wasn't. She was very ill. And uh, when she moved there, she began writing these shockingly visceral and surrealistic novels, short, sh- short stories, and poetry. So in 77, she finally checked herself into a hospital for the mentally ill, where she eventually took up permanent residence. And she's remained there ever since. Yep. By choice. 
She wants to live there. She feels happiest there. She feels safest there. Mostly because like she's a she's around people that can help her if she gets to a point where yes. she needs some help. Yes, exactly. She feels okay. safe there because she is surrounded by people who can help her if she needs. Okay. And her studio is actually not far away. It's a short walk from so she the like, hospital. So it's like her apartment. Basically. She leaves. She'll go to work at her studio. Yes. She'll go to the, she'll go around the shops. Yep. Sometimes she goes on vacation and she returns to her apartment at the, at the mental hospital. Okay. Absolutely. Like in the documentary, I think the opening scenes are like, they follow her, like getting up in the morning, brushing her teeth and leaving the mental hospital to go down the street to like start work. It's How about wild. That? It's wild. That seems, that's, you know what? You know it what? Sounds Japan? Like a, uh, yeah. Bless him. It sounds like a, like a cush situation. Like it just sounds good. <laughs> I mean, she has she has a studio. She has artistic representation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if if a museum or a gallery was to try and like acquire a piece of artwork from her, she's got she's got representation like any other artist. Mm-hmm. It just she happens to live in a mental hospital, and she doesn't travel a lot now. I mean, she's elderly, but yeah. you know, she hasn't since she checked herself in. She has been often quoted as saying, if it not, if it were not for art, I would have killed myself a long time ago. So this is definitely like part of her therapy. Mm -hmm. So from this base of this hospital, she has continued to produce artworks in a variety of media, as well as launching a literary career by publishing several novels, a poetry collection and an autobiography. Uh, Her painting style shifted to high color acrylics on canvas on like a larger scale. Mm -hmm. Um, her organically abstract paintings of one or two colors, which are the Infinity Net series, um, which she began upon arriving in New York, garnered comparisons to the work of Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and Barnett Newman. So they're very similar kind of abstract expressionist, like repeated minimalism mm-hmm. kind of thing. Abex. Yes, Abex. Oh, yes. I mm. found out. Mm-hmm. I, sidebar. I've watched a documentary on Netflix called Made You Look, and it's mm-hmm. about... Um, and uh, a gallery in New York, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, <gasps> selling uh, faked paintings from the abstract expressionists, for which is about so easy to fake. Fifteen years, yeah, it's very easy to fake. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like people don't figure. You know, they you can test the paint and stuff like that. And yeah, be like oh, this paint color didn't exist while this artist was alive, exactly. and that's how you know. That's how they found out a lot of these things, but it was really interesting. Yeah, I I have that on my list. I have to watch them. Abex. So stupid. Anyway, (laughs) Um, when she left New York, she was practically forgotten as an artist until the late 1980s and 1990s. And that's when she received a lot of um, retrospectives, Mm -hmm. um, which kind of revived international interest. I probably became familiar with maybe her work, if not her name, in the late 90s, because there was a... Uh, contemporary art museum in Pittsburgh called the Mattress Factory. Yes. And um, they have an infinity room that is like white mannequins covered in bright orange polka dots. Okay. Spurst, interspersed throughout the room. Oh, okay. That's so cool. So it's both mirrors and, and the polka dots mm-hmm. on the... Sculptures, uh, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, mannequins. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I'll have to go. I haven't actually, you know, that's the the funny thing about this is that her work has become so commercial, mm-hmm. which, you know, is fine. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something that she's on board with and, you know, it's it's part of her whole yeah. thing. 
Um, but yeah, infinity rooms, you see them in Las Vegas. You see right? them like, yeah, yes. in New York city, like come to the infinity rooms. It's like, that's one of the like blockbuster things that museums mm-hmm. do sometimes. They're just like event spaces. Mm-hmm. We'll just have an infinity room for a couple of months, a summer. Then you so go and like grammable. take pictures. It is very grammable, which is kind of too bad. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm of two minds about it because as like, you know, a pure and perfect art historian, I want to say like, well, you know, it's, you're supposed to go in and like experience the obliteration of yourself. But on the other hand, it's like, it's just beautiful. It really is. It's yeah. just b- beautiful to like, just stand in there and like, some of them have water. So like you oh. stand on the end of like this mirrored pier. So you have an extra like reflective surface that, that moves with, you know, the wow. air shifting and, and it's just and the lights and everything like that. I mean, they're just so incredibly beautiful and like greatly well thought out and all this stuff. But yeah, I think as long as these people aren't getting in the way of people who are really there to like, experience the art yeah. but you're like oh sorry i'm taking this 795th photo to try to get the perfect photo to put on my social on my media gram. then it's very annoying yeah. but you know yeah i mean snap a picture in an infinity room sure absolutely oh my god if we if if the meg got an infinity room i would be in there in like 18 different costume changes just like snappity <laughs> snap 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 i would look i would put like a the face filter on it i would look like i would look like bella hadid like come on like, don't get me wrong. A hundred percent. Um, so, uh, where was I? Sorry. You no, were in no, the nineties. Oh yeah. So, um, Yayo Kasama, a retrospective was the first critical survey of her work presented at the center for international contemporary arts or Sika in New York in 1989. So following the success of the Japanese pavilion at the Venice Biennial in 1993, a dazzling mirrored room filled with small pumpkin sculptures in which she resided in color coordinated magician's attire. Kusama went on to produce a huge yellow pumpkin sculpture covered with an optical pattern of black spots. The pumpkin came to represent for her a kind of alter ego or self portrait going back to like when she would draw pumpkins as a child. So her later installation, I'm Here But Nothing, from 2000 to 2008, is a simply furnished room consisting of table and chairs, place settings and bottles, armchairs and rugs. However, its walls are tattooed with hundreds of fluorescent polka dots glowing in UV light. So the result is an endless infinite space where the self and everything in the room is obliterated. So now in her ninth decade, she has continued to work as an artist. She has hearkened back to earlier work by returning to drawing and painting. Her work remains innovative and multidisciplinary and a 2012 exhibition displayed multiple acrylic on canvas work. So she's back to working on canvas. Um, Also featured was an exploration of infinite space in her infinity mirror rooms. And these typically involve a cube shaped room lined in mirrors. Um, And this one, these have more water on the floor and flickering lights, which actually suggest a pattern of life and death. Um, and then in 2017, the Yayo Kasama Museum opened in Tokyo, which featured her work. So you can, if you were ever in Tokyo, you can go in to the Yayo Kasama Museum, which is cool. Just what you want in your museum. Exactly. So water on the floor. Yeah. I mean, Kasama is very um, art theory 101. Like it's extremely straightforward. You get like a sense of like where she's coming from. Mm-hmm. She's not, there's not a lot of like hiding her, her, like what she's her meanings and things like that. It, everything traces back to her biography and her mental health and all that stuff. So um, it's very interesting and also just like beautiful to look at. Her yeah. stuff is just so gorgeous. So very commercial. awesome. Yeah. And now everybody should remember that name. Yeah, Yoyo Kasama because she's incredible. 
definitely watch that documentary on Hulu. It's, it's great. And you hear like she speaks about her life, which is really interesting. So my quiz today is called Queen of Dots, a quiz on women named Dorothy. Question number one. Let's get this one out of the way. There are 14 Oz books by L. Frank Baum. How many of them feature Dorothy Gale? Question number two. This mid-century actress was nominated for a Golden Globe in 1959 for Porgy and Bess and was the first African-American film star to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, which was for her performance in 1954's Carmen Jones. She died under mysterious circumstances and was later introduced to modern audiences through an HBO film starring Halle Berry. Who is this actress? Question number three. Dorothy Gibson was a pioneering silent film actress, artist model, and singer active in the early 20th century. She is best known, however, for having a first-hand experience in a legendary disaster and then starring as herself in the first motion picture about said disaster. What event did Dorothy Gibson make a movie about? Question number four. Here's a quick one for the TV fans. What is the full name of B. Arthur's character in Golden Girls? And for an extra point, what was her maiden name? Question number five, America's icy sweetheart Dorothy Hamill has been skating since the age of eight and inspired haircuts for young women across America in the 70s and early 80s. As accomplished as she is, she only medaled at the Olympics once, winning gold at Innsbruck, Austria in what year? Question number six, this English writer is best known for her mysteries, a series of novels and short stories set between the First and Second World Wars that feature English aristocrat and amateur sleuth Lord Peter Whimsey. She is also known for her plays, literary criticism, and essays, and even produced a popular translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. Who is this writer who died in 1957? Question number seven. Which adorable Sesame Street character has a pet goldfish named Dorothy? Question number eight. This very famous actress's given name is Dorothy, although you know her best by her middle name. Her elegant style and bold acting were in full form in movies such as Bonnie and Clyde and Chinatown, both of which garnered her Oscar nominations. Who is this 70s ingenue? Question number nine. Dorothy Fields was one of the first successful female songwriters and wrote over 400 songs for Broadway musicals and films. She was also a member of a collection of New York City music publishers and songwriters who dominated the popular music of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century and referred to a specific place, West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in the Flower District of Manhattan. It's not that small of a street, though. What is the name of this place, which was also a 1940 musical starring Betty Grable? And finally, question number 10. P.D. James, born Phyllis Dorothy James, was best known for her detective mystery series starring her tall, handsome detective Adam Dunglish. But she branched out into dystopian sci-fi in 1992 for this novel, later a film, set in the near future where a mysterious mass infertility threatens the future of humanity. What is the name of this novel? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. A country dance was being held in a garden I felt a bump and hurt and, oh, beg your pardon Suddenly I saw 
polka dots and moonbeams all around the pug nose dream. The music started and was I the perplexed one. I held my breath and said, may I have the next one in my frightened arms? Polka dots and moonbeams sparkled on a pug nose dream. There were questions in the eyes of other dancers as we floated over the I feel very good about some of these and okay. not so good about others. All right. Just great. like a normal quiz. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel I'm, I think you'll be totally fine. All right. Here we go. Question number one. Let's get this one out of the way. There are 14 Oz books by L. Frank Baum. How many of them feature Dorothy Gale? I think it's only one. It's 13. No. So she, appear, she appears in at least a cameo oh. in 13 of the 14 books and does not appear in the second book which is called The Marvelous Ant Land of Oz, but is mentioned frequently by the characters. <sighs> the protagonist of that book is an orphan boy named Tip. So she she is like a character mm -hmm. in all of them, except for the second book, which is confusing. But Oh, I know. man. She becomes Princess of Oz. Like she she's becomes best friends with Ozma yeah, of I was Oz. Just trying to, yeah, I was just trying to think of like some of the titles. And yeah. I was like, okay, Ozma of Oz and... Uh, and I clearly don't remember enough. And then I was thinking about Wicked, and I was like, I don't remember them ever talking about Dorothy and Wicked. <laughs> just yeah. like that. That's my inner voice. That's your inner Sorry. voice is just like deep. 197 episodes later, you find out that that's what my inner voice is. This guy. I never, I never oh. like that, talk like I'm, that. I'm Julius in a monologue. This is what it sounds like. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. All right. Question number two. This mid-century actress was nominated for a Golden Globe in 1959 for Porgy and Bess, was the first African-American film star to be nominated for the Academy Award and for her performance in Carmen Jones. She died under mysterious circumstances and was later introduced to modern audiences through an HBO film starring Halle Berry, who is this actress. It's Dorothy Dandridge. It is Dorothy Dandridge. Um, this the circumstances of her death. I had no idea. Mm. So on September 8th of 1965, Dandridge spoke by telephone with friend and former sister-in-law, Geraldine Branton. Branton told biographies that during the long conversation, Dandridge veered from expressing hope for the future to singing Barbara Streisand's people in its entirety to making this cryptic remark moments before hanging up on her. Whatever happens, I know you will understand. Several hours later, she was found naked and, un and unresponsive in her apartment by her manager, Earl Mills. And a Los Angeles Pathology Institute determined that the cause of death was an accidental overdose of the antidepressant imipramine, while the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office concluded that she died of a fat embolism resulting from a right foot fracture sustained five days previously. So they still don't know, like, what wow. happened to her. It's so weird. Ooh. Question number three, Dorothy Gibson was a pioneering silent film actress, artist, model, and singer active in the early 20th. She is best known, however, for having a firsthand experience in a legendary disaster and then starring as herself in the first motion picture about said disaster. What event did Dorothy Gibson make a movie about? I think I just read about this this past week, and that Get is out. the Titanic. Yes, the sinking of the Titanic. It was called Saved from the Titanic. It came out the same year it sang. Right. And it was very short, though. Yes, right. it was a short film. Mm -hmm. um, she not only starred in it, but she wrote the screenplay and wore the same clothing <gasps> that she wore yeah. that fateful night. 
Yeah, she got out in like the first. It was the first. It was the first lifeboat. Weird. Lifeboat number seven. She was playing bridge with her mother and like a bunch of friends. And then the thing hit the iceberg. And then they were like, all right, let's get on the boat. It was very like unremarkable. <laughs> but she got, she like, she really milked it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number four. Here's a quick one for the TV fans. What is the full name of B. Arthur's character in Golden Girls? And for an extra point, what was her maiden name? I don't know Dorothy's middle name, but her last name on the show was Zbornak. Oh, no, her maiden name. And her maiden name was Patrillo. Yes. Yep. Yes. So you were correct. Dorothy Zbornak, nay Patrillo. Um, B. Arthur considered uh, the character of Dorothy to be the, quote, great balloon pricker. Someone who openly defied and called out hypocrisy, injustice, cruelty, delusion, short-sighted remarks, and behavior she simply found dull, inconsidered, rude, or unreasonable. She's all... She, actually, honestly, I think B. Arthur is my inner monologue. <laughs> Just deep-voiced and over it. <laughs> okay. And this question is so relevant to last week, I can't believe it. Question number five, America's icy sweetheart, Dorothy Hamill, has been skating since the age of eight and inspired haircuts for young women across America in the 70s and 80s. As accomplished as she is, she only medaled at the Olympics once, winning gold at Innsbruck, Austria, in what year? It's 1976. It is 1976. Uh, Hamill is credited with developing a new skating move, a camel spin that turns into a sit spin, which became known as the Hamill Camel. Um, <laughs> the bobbed hairstyle that she wore during her Olympic performance was created by stylist Yusuke Suga and started a fad known as the short and sassy look. So there you go. And for more on figure skating, you can check out the episode Go Figure with Ryan Myers. Yes, that was very good. Um, question number six. This English writer is best known for her mysteries, a series of novels and short stories set between the first and second world wars that feature English aristocrat and amateur sleuth, Lord Peter Whimsey. She's also known for her plays, literary criticism and essays, and even produced a popular translation of Dante's divine comedy. Who is this writer who died in 1957? Uh, just because this is a name of a Dorothy that I wrote down that doesn't fit anywhere else. Is the answer Sayers? Yes, it's <gasps> Dorothy L. Sayers. Yeah. Uh, Sayers herself considered her translation of Dante's Divine Comedy to be her best work. Uh, Hell appeared in 49. Uh, then Purgatory followed in 55. And the third volume was unfinished at the time of her death and was completed by Barbara Reynolds in 1962. Okay. Question number seven. Which adorable Sesame Street character has a pet goldfish named Dorothy? That's Elmo. It is Elmo. According to the Muppet Wiki, Dorothy is Elmo's pet goldfish who first appeared on the Elmo World segment of Sesame Street at six years old in goldfish years. She is a good friend to Elmo who can understand what she's saying through her goldfish bowl. Dorothy is inquisitive and possesses an active imagination. What did we learn? Goldfish is only of a 10 second memory yes. or something. So of course she's so like every day wrapped is, Every day is new for Dorothy. Every day is new for Dorothy. Okay, question number eight. This very famous actress's given name is Dorothy, although you know her best by her middle name. Her elegant style and bold acting were in full form in movies such as Bonnie and Clyde and Chinatown, both of which garnered her Oscar nominations. Who is this 70s ingenue? Is that Faye Dunaway? It is Faye Dunaway. I didn't know that wasn't her. I didn't know right, either. Name. Her, her born name was uh, Dorothy Faye Dunaway. She went by her middle name. 
Um, apparently she went full method while portraying Joan Crawford in 1981's Mommy Dearest and was awful to work with. That was her? That was her. Doesn't she look exactly like (gasps) Joan Crawford in that movie? I didn't know that was her. Spitting image. Um, the movie was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Worst Picture, but is now seen as a classic work of high camp. Um, it is also part of a film, film subgenre known as psychobiddy, along with whatever happened to baby Jane. So it's this concept <laughs> of like crazy old lady, basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number nine. Dorothy Fields was one of the first successful female songwriters and wrote over 400 songs for Broadway musicals and films. She was also a member of a collection of New York city music publishers and songwriters who dominated the popular music of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and referred to a specific place, West 28th street between fifth and sixth avenues in the flower district of Manhattan. It's not that small of a street, though. What is the name of this place, which was also a 1940 musical starring Betty Grable? Um, I don't have a great answer here. I'm just picking a place that is a Broadway musical and going with 42nd Street. That's a very good guess, but it's Tin Pan Alley. Oh, okay. So no one really knows how the name of Tin Pan Alley got started, but apparently Tin Pan is an old slang for a decrepit piano so this idea like all these ah, songwriters old tin pan old, old tin pan so all of these songwriters were like all in the same street okay. so you, all you would hear was these like pianos blink, like blink, 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 blink. yeah um and so the term came to mean a hit songwriting business by like 1907 so it's an old term yeah um dorothy fields also wrote big spender and the way you look tonight amongst many other super recognizable oh songs yeah Uh, And finally, question number 10, P.D. James, born Phyllis Dorothy James, was best known for her detective mystery series starring her tall, handsome detective, Adam Dalglish. I've read all of them. But she branched out into dystopian sci-fi in 1992 for this novel, later a film, set in the near future when a mysterious mass infertility threatens the future of humanity. What is the name of this novel? I I have no clue. No clue. Okay. That's my answer. No worries. Um, this is Children of Men. This was, it was also okay. a 2006 movie starring Clive Owen and Julianne Moore. I think Okay. Um, Michael, Michael Caine was in it Michael too. Caine. Michael He's Caine. He's in a lot of movies, isn't he? Yeah, he really, he really is. Um, this was weirdly her only foray into sci-fi. Okay. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, it's excellent. And the movie is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, it's very strange that she wrote very like kind of cozy murder mysteries. Yes. And then she was like, I'm going to try my hand at dystopian sci-fi and then knocked it out of the park and then never touched it again. Well, you know, it's like, uh, tell the good joke and then leave. Yeah, exactly. Go out on a high note. Mm-hmm. Good for her. So anyway, yeah, that was terrific. Thanks. Yeah. Yaya Kusama. Everybody like look up her stuff and if you're anywhere near an infinity room, take advantage. It's, it's very cool to look at her Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it. Keep an eye out yeah. for mirrors and polka dots. Yes, absolutely. Dots and dicks and mirrors. And dots and dicks. Yes. Yeah, and dots and dicks. Not as not as many. Her dick stuff is not as crazy popular, strangely what? enough. Weird. <laughs> Strange. But yeah, that's that's worth looking at too. So um, so yeah. So we don't have anything to plug this week either, which is kind of nice. So uh <laughs> I guess I'll just close us with thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.